0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. I left the National Security Council and decided I wasn't going to write a kiss-and-tell book. Um, And uh, I wasn't going to write a political science book because I'm trained as a political scientist, um, but there's nothing like government service to make you a historian. And I wanted to write some history, And I wanted to understand where the strategic um, concepts that I wrote about uh, in the White House, I wrote the the major strategic documents that were never published, and some presidential speeches played a role in Bob Zilek's responsible stakeholder speech, and asserted all these kind of principles of American strategy in Asia. But the whole time wondered, where where did these come from? So I left, and I thought I'd write a fairly short book. because like Steve, I was taught, essentially, America kind of inherited Asia. <laughs> uh, inherited Asia in 1945, and there we were. And uh, we sort of put together alliances built a relationship with China. Um, uh, and surely there must be a book that tells this story. And um, I'm a professor at Georgetown, and I couldn't find one. The last one was written in 1922 by Tyler Dennett. <clears throat> um, there have been a lot of books that tell the history of US-China relations or US-India relations, but there hasn't been a comprehensive look strategy. So, um, you know, almost uh, 10 years later, I'm done. And it's a great feeling. And it's especially um, rewarding and uh, reassuring given what's happening today in Washington. Um, The Trump administration is confusing um, a lot of people, maybe the president himself, I don't know. And uh, our allies, our friends, Beijing, they're all wondering, is this a new trajectory in American foreign policy? Uh, is this um, uh, isolationism? And what is American isolationism? <laughs> um, and uh, at a time like this, uh, history and, and, and understanding the trajectory of history, and the arc of history over our 240 years of engagement with Asia uh, really helps you bound the problem. So I'm going to try to briefly talk about the book and apply it a little bit to what we're seeing right now in US policy towards Asia. And it comes out um, a little bit reassuring, (laughs) which is probably a good thing these days (laughs) um, if you're following politics in Washington. Um, So Donald Trump um, came into office uh, attacking the two major pillars of American strategy and leadership in Asia unabashedly. Um, he declared that he would not defend allies, including Japan and Korea, if they didn't pay more. And at one point he told the New York Times he didn't care if they went nuclear, uh, in effect. Um, And that pillar was built in 1951 in San Francisco, uh, when John Foster Dulles negotiated the so-called San Francisco Treaty System, alliances with Japan, Australia, New Zealand, um, the Philippines, and then later Korea and the Republic of China. But at the same time, uh, the new president made a full frontal attack in his first uh, few weeks um, after the election on the other pillar of American engagement and leadership in Asia, which is U.S.-China relations. And he went right at the core of the bargain that Richard Nixon struck in 1972 and that Jimmy Carter consummated in 1979 and that every president since has honored, which is um, our one-China policy. Um, He went right at it. And after the call with Tsai Ing-wen, president of Taiwan, when he was criticized, he said he's not necessarily going to abide by uh, a one-China policy. So it shook assumptions about U.S.-China relations uh, to the core. And then, um, about a month ago, he changed his mind. And uh, in a phone call with President Xi Jinping, um, he declared that he would honor uh, our one-China policy. And less than 48 hours later, in a meeting with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan, he read a joint statement uh, at the White House declaring that the US was fully committed to securing and defending our allies. And he said, including um, areas administered by Japan, which is a very technical uh, term, which was inserted by the Japanese foreign ministry, which means basically the Senkaku or which is kind of a litmus test for Japan of our security commitment. Um, So why the assault and why the switch? Well, if you're a social scientist, um, you try to explain things basically in one of two ways. Um, It's it's agency, it's the personalities involved, or it's structure. Um, And in my book, in a way, although I didn't cast it this way in the introduction, in, in in effect, it's a history of agency and structure, strategic ideas, who comes up with them, How do we frame our relationships with China, going back to Thomas Jefferson? Um, And then structure. How did we read the balance of power? How did we read domestic political um, interests and and interest groups in the US? And some ideas die. They don't last. Um, And some ideas become seminal. Um, And it's that interaction of agency, of, 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 of action and ideas and concepts with structure, with the reality that strategists or politicians or diplomats face. So if you look at just this one case of Mr. Trump's um, assault on our alliances and assault on the U.S. China relationship and then reversal, um, you could start with agency. I could tell you in Washington, agency is (laughs) everything. It's a parlor game. You know, who did this? How did this happen? Um, One explanation, which I think has legs, is that Donald Trump, in his book, The Art of the Deal, says you should bluff and go at... The thing that is most important to the person on the other side of the table and it worked for him um, politically and then before that in business so what's the thing japan values the most or korea values the most the security guarantee uh, what's the thing china values the most from the u.s um, it's one china policy it's the it's the it's the basis for everything else we do own uh, basically um and so he bluffed. he put those on the table now if you're going to bluff speaking as a strategist you probably shouldn't publish it in a book that you bluff because um, everyone's not reading his book. Um, but that's one explanation. He bluffed, they called his bluff, and he went back to a different position. Other agency-based explanations would be, and you'll hear this in Washington, you'll hear this in Tokyo and Beijing, basically um, uh, the Japanese had an a- had access to Ivanka Trump, and the Chinese had access to Jared Kushner through Ambassador Sui Tan Kai. Uh, both of which are true, by the way and so the theory goes if you're looking at agency that that's how both countries got them to reverse it i don't know if that's true if it is true then um we should hope that jared and ivanka have a very strong marriage because if they break up us and japan china triangular relations will become inherently unstable and chaotic Um, and there are other explanations jim mattis the secretary of defense went to japan and said everything that the president later said and forced his hand and rex tillerson called the white house and said you've got to stop the uncertainty about the one china policy that's agency but it flipped once it could flip again Uh, in both beijing and tokyo uh two weeks ago on a trip i heard a lot of concern well if it flipped once it could flip again so that's why structure also matters and if you look at the structure of u.s china relations or u.s relations uh, with our allies or overall in asia there's an awful lot of structural um breaks, I would say, on a rapidly different trajectory in American foreign policy in Asia. Domestically, over half of Americans in polls say Asia is the most important region to us. Um, Over 60% in one poll uh, support TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, Polling by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the German Marshall Fund, and others towards about our alliances, Japan and Korea especially, are the highest they've ever been. I can tell you from working with Congress a lot, especially remote Republican members of the Senate, there, and Jim would know that there's never been more support for engagement with Japan and China among Republicans, but also Democrats, ever, in my experience with Congress. Congress is now the source of stability and predictability. <laughs> um, and governors. Uh, the governor of Alabama opposed TPP, but otherwise every governor in the union is in favor of TPP and, of course, in favor of Chinese investment. Um, The polls on China, as you all probably know, have been getting worse. The Chicago Council poll asks, is China an adversary or a partner every two years? And adversary now beats partner by 10 to 15 points. But in other polls, they've asked, what should the U.S. do about China? And um, containment gets less than 10 percent. Appeasement or or, or moving out of the way, uh, I forget how they phrase it, gets less than 10 percent. And most are somewhere in the middle you know engage china strengthen our alliances which basically is our policy and i always come back to this um, experience i had uh, when i was working as an advisor for governor romney's campaign for president i have a proud history of of working on failed republican presidential candidate uh, (laughs) campaigns i uh, mccain that was fun it was a wild ride (laughs) romney was not as fun um, uh, I worked for Jeb Bush. I was his co-chair of his Asia group and then worked for Marco Rubio and then Governor Kasich's people asked me and I said, I'm a jinx if you don't want me. Um, but I was not a core player in the Romney team and I wouldn't pretend to be, but I was invited as an advisor to a strategy session where the Asia guys and the real important people, the pollsters, got to, the pollsters on American views and, the, and doing the microanalysis, got together to talk about Ohio the state of ohio so somebody not me on the foreign policy side said we should hit china even harder governor romney had said he would list china as a currency manipulator on day one which if you know the relevant um legislation is basically you know we'll have more meetings um, and somebody said you know you ought to say you'll sanction them on day one or something tougher so the pollsters who were watching you know the base the republican base in ohio's this isn't about a september october 2012 said no 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 Every time Governor Romney attacks China, his support goes down among the base in Ohio. Why? Soybean exports. But interestingly, not just soybean exports, Japanese and Korean companies have major production in Ohio, and people react to any protectionism against any Asian country as a threat to good jobs with Japanese and Korean companies. So that's structured domestically, and I think it's pretty strong. And I think there's a constituency for free trade if there's a leader who wants to build it. And then there's the international structure and distribution of power. You can't fight with your allies if one of your major concerns is the rise of China, and you can't pick gratuitous fights with China if the most immediate threat you face is North Korea's nuclear weapons program. Um, there's just an, a, a, an overwhelming logic to what you have to do. Um, that, in my study, I found. Uh, I don't want to be. Uh, uh, I don't want to pretend history predicts the future, but but structure matters. And the best strategists are the ones who conceive American interests, understand the domestic structure of politics and interests, and, and how to lead the American people to deal with the challenges and opportunities created by structure of politics and trade and, and civilizational rivalry in Asia. So uh, the book gave me some comfort. So I- if nothing else, it's a little bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of an upper. <laughs> a little bit of a, of a reassuring read, I think, given um, given where we where we are in the uncertainty, and it makes me feel more optimistic about where we're heading. Um, just briefly, the s- sort of key structure of the book. I I um, I started in 1783 because the f- the first document I found that I would call strategic was a letter from Thomas Jefferson in 1783 to George Rogers Clark. Um, Arguing, uh, well, t- informing him that the British had formed an expedition to go across Canada under Sir Alexander Mackenzie to control the Pacific Northwest. And Jefferson knew uh, about the Pacific. Um, and he knew not only that the Pacific Northwest was essential for a continental republic from coast to coast, but also for access to the Pacific. How did he know about the Pacific? Any Dartmouth grads? Okay, Dartmouth grads party like no, at least in this book, like no grads I know. So so you must have heard of John Ledyard. So John Ledyard was I think a sophomore and in the 1770s and he chopped down, this must, on spring break when I went to Kenyon College, we went to Denison or Ohio State and drank beer. But apparently at Dartmouth it's different because he cut down a tree, carved it into a canoe, went down the Connecticut River, joined the Royal Marines, Was put on board board Captain Cook's flagship and traveled around the Pacific with him, saw him get killed in Hawaii, and came back during the American Revolution, jumped ship, um, and uh, started talking to Thomas Jefferson, Robert Morris, who paid for and sent the Empress of China in 1784 about... Pacific, about the Pacific Northwest where sea otter pelts were being taken and sold to the Hong merchants in Canton, now Guangzhou, about how Hawaiian sandalwood was very popular. And um, so he knew what he was talking about. And um, if there's a leitmotif to the book, which is an important lesson for our, our friends in the region, it's that the U.S. is and has always been, at some level, attentive to the balance of power. In the Asia-Pacific region, and has never been tolerant of rivals or hegemonic rivals that would keep us out. So, for example, um, you all have heard of the Monroe Doctrine in 1820, uh, the 1820s, when uh, John Quincy Adams essentially, a, you know, sent a signal to the European powers about the Caribbean. But at the same time, he was dealing with Russian expansion into the Pacific Northwest, um, and he called in the Russian ambassador in Washington as Secretary of State and essentially threatened war against Russia Um, in an extension of the Monroe Doctrine not well understood or written about to the Pacific Northwest. In 1841, Secretary of State Daniel Webster got President Tyler to extend the Monroe Doctrine to Hawaii. It's called the Tyler Doctrine, saying that if France or Britain, particularly, tried to take control of Hawaii from us, there would be war. Did we have the ability to fight either of those wars? No. What was brilliant about John Quincy Adams and Daniel Webster was they understood power politics in European context. And they knew, even though we weren't that powerful, that the British, the French, the Russians, particularly at the time of the Concert of Europe, did not want an American war with one of them to upset that balance. And played it quite skillfully. Um, I won't go through every case, but we, when we're good, have been quite good at reading the balance of power. We're often bad, but when we're good, we're quite good and have not um, and have not uh, uh, t- t- turned inward or retreated when faced with uh, hegemonic rivals. The British first, briefly the Germans, the Japanese, the Soviet Union, and now China is the big question. Um, but that said, there are tensions and there are difficulties. And as Winston Churchill said, you can always count on the Americans to do all the wrong things before they finally do the right thing. And much of this history is not pretty. Um, even if in the longer picture we're quite effective in the details, and this is what most diplomatic historians look at is the details, we look incompetent, (laughs) it's fair to say. Um, And there are, it's not just because we're Americans. Um, There are some real challenges for the United States dealing with the Pacific because of geography, because of the nature of Asian civilization, hierarchy, order, and rivalry that are not in some ways so different today than they were in 1784 despite technology, despite democracy, despite um, the growth of the nation state. One tension we face in our strategy towards Asia is that for almost our entire history, we've looked to Europe first. It's not just because most of our founding fathers came from the old country, except those who came from Africa against their will, uh, but it was a logical grand strategy. Because Europe, as much as we disdain the old country, which I think is a characteristic of the Trump administration right now, as much as we disdained the old country and thought it was corrupting for our republic, by the 19th, uh, 1900s, leaders recognized that the survival of Britain and the prevention of a hegemonic power in Europe was the most important thing to liberal, open international order that we benefited from. So in World War I, Woodrow Wilson let Japan expand in Asia because Japan was allied with Britain. And he didn't want to confront Britain uh, because he wanted to create the League of Nations. That's one of the main reasons why he rejected the Japanese proposal for an anti-racism clause in the League of, no- of, League of Nations. It, he was a Virginia and, and certain, had certain racial attitudes, to be sure, but strategically he thought Britain, what um, Colonel Wilson, his National Security Advisor, called the gyroscope of international relations, had to remain a pillar. And that's also the same reason why Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a Europe first strategy, defeat the Nazis first. Um, There were military reasons for this. If we fought Japan and the Germans knocked out Britain and the Soviet Union, we'd have a hell of a time liberating Europe from Norfolk, Virginia. But if we could contain Japan and take the islands around Japan, we could blockade and deal with the Germans and then deal with Japan. So there was a military logic, but the politics at the time, overwhelmingly, because of Pearl Harbor, in the Congress, in the US Navy, and in the American public, were get Japan first. But we did Europe first. Uh, um, In in the height of the Korean War, we were sending more infantry divisions to NATO than to Korea. Um, And even Richard Nixon's very famous opening to China, which was very geopolitical, was ultimately about rebalancing back to Europe after the Vietnam War, um, the central front. So this is a challenge today. Um, For President Obama pivoted to Asia. He had a heck of a time keeping a focus on Asia given what was happening in the Middle East and then Russia. Um, so this is a problem, this is a tension. And our Asia policy suffers often uh, because it's not usually the first priority. Now, most Americans today for the first time say Asia is the most important region. And that's a big change. And Walter Lippmann, the famous um, columnist um, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, argued in the late 30s that it's important to remember that the United States and the American people are not isolationist in Asia were isolationists towards Europe. In 1940, when France fell, um, a majority of Americans said we should stay out of the war in Europe, large majority. But an equally large majority said we should pressure Japan over its invasion of China, even if it means risking war with Japan. Um, Second tension has been about the nature of Asia itself. Um, You have two broad strategic schools of thought, Mahan, Alpha Thera Mahan, some prefer Mahan, Um, which argues whoever controls the sea lanes uh, will be more secure. And then you have Mackinder, whoever controls the heartland, a sort of continental and maritime uh, view. And then you couple that with who are the major players in Asia we dealt with throughout our history. The biggest powers within Asia were China and Japan. Uh, China is logically at the center of Asian civilization, but it's a continental power, and we're a maritime power in the Pacific. Japan is a maritime power. Japan's archipelago is our forward defense line. So in 1853, um, the US commissioner, ambassador to China, was a Kentucky cavalryman named Humphrey Marshall. Um, I went to the Humphrey Marshall Library in Lexington, Kentucky. And people only go there because he was a Civil War general and uh, had a brigade of Kentucky cavalrymen in the Civil War. And so I went to talk to them about Humphrey Marshall, commissioner to China. They said, oh, no, no one ever comes here to talk about that. But I was interested because in 1853, Humphrey Marshall, and he was the first commissioner in China to say this, argued the U.S. has a strategic stake in making sure that China is whole, one China. And because if it's not, the entirety of Asia will collapse into it, and you'll have an expansion of imperialism, and America will be pushed out by other hegemonic powers. And so he wanted to take the small um, East Asia squadron um, that was was, um, in Guangzhou to try to go up uh, the Pearl River and negotiate with the Celestial Emperor and show the flag. Um, and in the midst of the Taiping Rebellion, play balance of power inside China to keep the Russians and the British out. Unfortunately for him, that squadron was commanded by a man named uh, um, Commodore Matthew Perry, 1853. So Perry took the squadron, stranded his State Department colleague, a reoccurring theme, <coughs> um, and opened Japan. And um, Humphrey Marshall's vision essentially uh, became the basis for the open door notes of John Hay. (coughs) Um, Matthew Perry's vision became the basis for another naval officer, Alfred Mahan, to argue for a maritime strategy centered on Japan. And this history is still with us. I mean, I'm a Japan guy, so I will proudly claim the the Navy-Mohanian view. But the reality is, as I learned in the NSC you've got to do both. But there's a tension. Uh, Marshall Green, no relation, a very famous diplomat, wrote that um, this tension had been around as long as he'd been in the State Department, since before World War II. And he told the story of how Nixon uh, would go to uh, Japan, and the Gaimusho foreign ministry bureaucrats would translate the talking points they had written for the prime minister in a very sort of obsequious sort of Way. Whereas in China, the interpreters were tall, beautiful women who were trained to laugh at Nixon's and Kissinger's jokes before translating so that Mao or Zhou Enlai would laugh at them. And Marshall Green said, he spoke Japanese, as hard as he tried to explain it, he said, yeah, no surprise, Nixon and Kissinger. But Nixon and Kissinger had a different view of how Asia is organized and saw China as the key center in a global context. Others, um, Ronald Reagan, um, Hillary Clinton, saw or more of a maritime view the people's day De- i think it was the people's daily i cited in the book had a opinion piece um, when um uh, secretary of state nominee um um our previous secretary of state <laughs> soon they forget uh, john kerry was announced the people's daily had an editorial saying good riddance to hillary clinton now we have a secretary of state who's wise enough not to affair and meddle in the affairs of the far east um, they did not like clinton Meanwhile, Sankei Shunbun, Yomiuri Shumun in Japan, I had a turtle saying, oh man, are we in trouble now? <laughs> Clinton's gone, this guy is a continentalist. So people in Asia see, often see, our strategic political leaders as one or the other. So this is a tension. There's no right answer to any of these. The key is how do you get the right balance to maintain consistency? Third tension is, you know, where do we draw our forward defensive line? Um, in the 19th century, the Navy, in particular, wanted coaling stations. They wanted stepping stones so that we could have, like the British in Hong Kong, access to China. And in 1898, with the Spanish-American War, they got their, vo- their vote, they got their wish. We, we annexed Hawaii and we took Guam and the next, the Philippines. And a few years later, um, the Navy board met with President Theodore Roosevelt um, and Roosevelt asked them, how do we defend these far away bases against the Imperial Japanese Navy, which is right there with very short lines, which had just defeated two Russian fleets in the Russo-Japanese War, taking advantage of Japan's short lines of communication in the Western Pacific. And and what followed was um, three and a half decades of work on what was known as War Plan Orange, how we would fight Japan. Um, After the war, um, George F. Kennan um, argued in 47 and 48, maritime power, student of Mahan, student of, uh, uh, there's a lot of intellectual kind of passing down through the generations. We will draw our defensive line between Japan and the continent, between the first island chain and the continent. And then, of course, Dean Acheson made his famous speech based on that in January 1950, saying our defensive line after the victory of the Chinese communists will be here, and will be safe, because our defensive line will be through the waters between the first island chain and the Chinese mainland. Who, who noticed that? Kim Il-sung. <laughs> and six months later attacked South Korea. So our, that defensive line didn't work, so we went into Korea. So, okay, um, we now have to defend our defensive line. We defined it uh, based on where we're fighting communism. Where was the next big fight with communism? Indo-China. What happens to our forward defensive line? Pulled onto the continent of Asia. What does Nixon do? Pulls us back. Um, today, with the East China Sea and the South China Sea, we face this challenge again and this time with a China that has very capable missile, submarine, and other so-called area access, anti-access area denial, A2AD capabilities, and huge debates in Washington. Should we pull back? Should we defend at that line? So we face this again. Um, last two, I'll be brief, but um, trade versus protectionism. For most of our history, we were protectionist um, Republicans, Northeasterners, who led the opening of China and Japan, uh, Hawaii, Believed in the high tariff, um, but trade was very important to them. Uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote a piece, interestingly, for a naval strategist, in the 1880s, uh, late 1880s, arguing that protectionism was like ironclad ships in the Civil War, the Monitor and the Merrimack. They're good for defending rivers, but we're a Pacific power now. We need ocean-going battleships, and the equivalent in trade is free trade, open markets. And he based this on a reciprocity treaty we had with Hawaii that we signed in 1870. And by 1880, 90% of Hawaii's trade with, with, uh, was with the U.S. So he recognized what later scholars would call hegemonic stability, the idea that your open market can increase your influence and shape the region. Um, and that's what we did after the war, and it worked too well. And then we started having trade wars, first with Japan, then with Korea, then with Taiwan, now with China. So um, this is a hard one. It's, it's essential to our position in the region. I don't think free trade is dead in the U.S. Um, the current administration is, appears utterly uninterested in a bilateral investment treaty with China or TPP. Anything that opens other markets they see as bad because jobs will leave, which is, Dan Rosen will tell us, I hope, not true. <laughs> but um, I think this tension is still with us. And then human rights and democracy. Um, all I would say on this is, when I was in a graduate school at SAIS, at Johns Hopkins in the mid-80s, we all read uh, Lucian Pai, great, great scholar. And Lucian Pai wrote a book in '85, essentially arguing that Asians like authoritarianism. And unfortunately for Professor Pai, who's a great scholar, uh, within the next three years, uh, Japan, excuse me, Korea, uh, Taiwan, and the Philippines all democratized, and then a decade later, Indonesia. At the same time when I studied at SAIS, I was a student of Robert Osgood and George Lischke. These were all the students of Morgenthau from the University of Chicago. And they were profoundly anti-Wilsonian, anti-Wilson. And they thought that we got into the war because of Wilsonian idealism. And they argued, and I was a good student of this, that um, realism and real politic and strategy are different from caring about values and human rights. Um, And I was steeped in this as an Asianist and as a realist student of international relations. Um, Thomas Jefferson, in the uh, 1790s and early uh, 1800s, argues, what will we do if we actually get control of the Pacific Northwest? And his answer was, we're not an imperial power, we don't do colonies. We should encourage the growth of republics, of democratic republics, because that space will be friendly to us, because we have the same worldview. And um, that was also how um, Mahan, Perry, um, and others argued, Ronald Reagan, George Shultz, argued about the importance of democracy uh, as a as a, an element of our strategy in Asia. Um, and over the past 78 years, it's a success story. In 1945, New Zealand and Australia were the only democracies in the Western Pacific. We've done surveys at CSIS of elites in 10 Asian countries. And outside of China, when you ask how important is women's empowerment, good governance, free and fair elections, uh, among elites, um, 80, 90%. Um, now, the trick is, when you ask how important is non-interference in the affairs of other countries, we lose Indonesia, India, Thailand, all the post-colonial states side more with China. Um, so it's not, there's not a, you know, John McCain wanted to create a league of democracies. There's not a league of democracies. There's great variation. But the overall trend is has generally been useful, and it's not by accident. There's been some agency. There's been some American role in this. I don't want to overstate it. The Koreans created their democracy. Taiwanese created their democracy. But it's been under the umbrella of an American approach that generally has been favorably disposed and supportive to that. The current administration has not found its voice on these issues at all. It's not the strategic objective of our foreign policy, but it needs to be part of it, and we have, we have difficulty. So to conclude, um, there's no right answer in these different tensions, but I think um, the important thing is to recognize them. If you study history, it makes you modest. About what you can achieve with strategy, but I think it also shows you how important it is to have strategy. I think this is going to dawn on this administration. I think people like General McMasters in the National Security Council are strategic. Mattis is strategic. And I think uh, these same kinds of forces are going to start um, putting on them choices like the ones made around alliances and the One China policy. And at the end of the day, The US is capable of strategic thought, even now. And even if we don't think about it very much, or even if the administration doesn't want to think about it very much, uh, I'll end with the words of Leon Trotsky, who reported, I could never find the citation, but who reportedly said, fine, you may not be interested in strategy, but strategy is interested in you. (laughs) So thank you. look forward to your questions. That
1: that was terrific. Um, one of the things that's changed over time in terms of us policy towards asia is the ability of our leaders to interact that you know 50 years ago it was the leaders of of japan of china of southeast asian companies did not interact with presidents of the united states maybe the asia experts went now we have these interactions that are virtually constant that you know, Prime Minister Abe has already met with President Trump. A week from tomorrow, uh, Xi Jinping will meet with, with President Trump. What's been the, and sometimes our presidents think strategically, and sometimes they don't, yeah. as you kind of lay out in your book. Um, how should we think about those interactions and their effect, and how should we think then about next, next Thursday and Friday it's a great
0: it's a great question when I uh, went back to teach at Georgetown and go to CSIS the first book I thought I was going to write was going to be about leaders because um, I'd worked in the Pentagon a little bit in USGR but working in the White House is a completely different experience being uh, with, with the president before and after his summit meetings and uh, political scientists don't study leaders political scientists don't like Agency—they don't like leaders because you can't generalize. They're all different. So I went back to Georgetown and I started teaching a course on leaders. I didn't write the book. I told my students, I said, I learned in the White House, you know, political scientists study structure, but agency matters. Agency is really important. Since November 8th, I told my students, structure, structure, is really critical. But anyway, it does matter. And um, you know, when I would brief President Bush before a meeting with Hu Jintao or before a meeting with and His first question was, what's on their mind as leaders? What pressures are they under? And if he could understand that, it was a much better summit. I went to China with a letter from President Bush to Hu Jintao. And um, Dai Bingguo, the then executive vice foreign minister, arranged for me to bring the letter um, to President Hu personally. It was awkward because we were in the Great Hall of People. And Foreign Minister Li Jiaxing held my hand all the way down the hall. <laughs> and if you've been to the great hall of the people, it's like two football fields, or it seemed like ten. Um, he was holding my hand. He said, someone wants to meet you.
1: Um, he was setting you up on a date. I hope it was huge <laughs> you <Sujitao. laughs>
0: um, And it was, and, and it was very interesting. He did it, not because, I mean, I was a bag-carrying staff guy. He did it. This was right after President Bush's re-election. He did it as a personal gesture to George W. Bush. Because George W. Bush had told him after SARS, unlike every other leader, you're doing a heck of a job. Now, later in Katrina, people realized that when President Bush <laughs> says doing a heck of a job, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> if you recall, he said that about um, Brown, was it? The guy right, who ran. Right. But no one had said
1: that to no, right. no
0: one, world leaders at all kind of lectured him. So the trust uh, mattered a lot. And I, I don't think that Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao Thought that George W. Bush would use U.S.-China relations or use them for his political advantage, and he demonstrated that. Um, that that stabilized U.S.-China relations through some not easy issues. A lot of people say, "Well, it was 9/11, so the U.S. didn't focus on China," or "Well, it was the EP3 incident. And the U.S. realized that you couldn't, you know, your assumptions about China were wrong." But I think a lot of it was that uh, that President Bush had that kind of relationship. I think Clinton had it. Um, To be honest, I'm not sure Barack Obama did. I think he was a much cooler customer, much more focused on his brief. Uh, People in the White House tell me that the last summit meeting with uh, President Xi was a good one, but that was the last one. So it it matters. The dynamics matter. The trust matters. You know, hopefully Donald Trump, in the business experience he's had, has learned that. Um, We'll see. We'll see.
1: What should we expect? Um, From the from the meeting next, next Thursday in Friday? Um,
0: well, I can tell you in Japan and Taiwan, they are terrified. Look, the Japanese, the statement, the joint statement that Donald Trump uh, read was written entirely by the Japanese foreign ministry, except for one line that the side took out. Um, and it was really only agreed to at the last moment before they went public. It was really seat of the pants. Um, the Japanese side had a really good idea, which was to create this economic dialogue with Mike Pence, who's been a fairly, has not been very active on foreign affairs, to try to get him as the counterpart for Deputy Prime Minister Asotaro. And they played it and they worked it. Um, and then at the last minute, the White House told him, your counterpart's going to be Peter Navarro.
1: <laughs>
0: exactly. you know, And the Japanese entire system, you know, at, the, at, the, at the moment of ultimate victory, <laughs> we're going to be partnering with, um, the biggest protectionist in the administration. Uh, And and Prime Minister Abe had to personally ask Donald Trump at the last minute to let have Pence do it. And so (laughs) the Japanese and Taiwans are worried that that kind of fly-by-the-pants approach could yield a result where, you know, who knows? The president says we have no business in the East China Sea or he agrees not to sell arms to Taiwan if North Korea gets a little more Chinese pressure or who knows. I think that's unlikely. I think that's unlikely. I think there's more... There are more professionals now in place in the White House and elsewhere. I think um, I, my guess would be um, Donald Trump wants a stable US China relationship, but he's going to beat up uh, Xi uh, after. And so there, are, I would predict. After. Taiwan, after. I would predict um, he meets him. He, he looks tough and firm. And then there are executive orders announcing um, some um, unilateral uh, positions on uh, steel dumping or maybe CFIUS investment controls, arms sales package to Taiwan. Um, I, I I don't have special inside knowledge, but that's sort of what I would, if I had to bet, that's what I'd bet on. But in the summit meeting, respectful, cordial, I think politically, um, uh, Xi is not going to get the free ride that Abe did. Uh, now Xi, I think, if, if he's not going to get a new model of great power relations, Xinjin, Dagwa, Japanese and Korean speaker, but that's close enough. Um, he's not gonna get that. <laughs> he's not gonna, I did. That was good. He's not gonna get that, and it'd be a mistake for the China side to push for that. Um, and I, I think that a photo op at Mar-a-Lago is probably, and a show of respect is probably good enough for now. And both sides, if they're wise, will view this not as an opportunity to lock in a relationship, but to begin a dialogue. No foreign leader should be locking in anything right now until more and more people are in place in the State Department and so forth. But we'll see. We'll see.
1: Do you you think – if the Japanese Foreign Ministry wrote that statement, then I'm I'm reading – I've looked up what uh, Secretary Tillerson said uh, when he was in China, which is a positive relationship built on non-confrontation, no conflict, mutual respect and always searching for win-win solutions. Did the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs write that? Because <laughs> yes. they've used it. Yes, Maybe. they did. So it's um, the same as the Japanese. Some
0: of my colleagues at CSIS and elsewhere in Washington said Tillerson blew it, this is a disaster. I don't think so. The new model I of agree. great power relations was problematic because it was it appeared to be a U.S.-China agreement on the nature of order in Asia. And China's a great power, the U.S. is a great power, Japan is not, India is not. It was a hierarchical confirmation in the views of the rest of Asia that the US saw China as a leading power. Huge mistake. I don't think that's what Secretary Kerry or Vice President Biden intended, but that's how it was seen. Um, uh,
1: these are, other the, th- are the Japanese serious? Absolutely. When you say that they don't think that China is the leading power in Asia, they want us not to suggest that China is the leading power in Asia? Hello?
0: There's only one other country <laughs> in Asia that has an emperor. And it's the Japanese. They've had an emperor since the 6th century for one reason, China. Uh, No. I mean, when Abe came to CSIS to give his first speech, which I emceed, um, he said Japan will never be a tier 2 power in Asia. So co-equal with China? Yes. Seeding leadership to China? I don't see it. So, um, now, the reality is when you get enough sake going, uh, Japan knows full well whether it's economics or security or diplomacy, they can't take China on alone. They know that, which is why Abe is clinging and strengthening uh, the US-Japan alliance so much, which is why a US statement saying, we see China's leading country is so jarring and, and risky for Japan or for other countries like India that are not allies but count on the US. Um, pursuing something I talk about in the book, which is a multipolarity polarity nation. Um, we, throughout most of our history, were a unipolar power briefly, perhaps, in 1945 when we had half of global GDP, and then briefly perhaps after the end of the Cold War. But most of our history, we've in reality dealt with multipolarity in Asia and not done badly. Bipolarity, US uh, China economy, does not work <coughs> to our advantage. Multipolarity, <coughs> where we have strong alliances but also embrace the rise of India, larger role for Indonesia, is favorable for us. These countries, Ronald Reagan, uh, I got declassified at Reagan National Security Council strategy document saying the right in 1982 the rise of India is whether India aligns with us or not in our strategic interests and Nixon uh, argued that in 67 in that famous Foreign Affairs article uh, Asia after Vietnam people remember it because it's the first time he hinted normalization with China but if you read it he's talking about India Japan a bipolar economy with China is not an advantageous to us doesn't mean you don't have a good relationship with China. But, but now China tends to think multipolarity on a global scale. There's a European poll, a US, North American poll, a Russian poll, and in Asia, there should be a poll and it should be China. Um, the game we play rhetorically with China, when you start looking at the text, is they favor a multipolar way of thinking about the world, and we favor, quietly, most of the time, a multipolar way of thinking about Asia, which is why uh, Nixon, Reagan, George W. Bush uh, Hillary Clinton, I don't know about the White House, all saw India as a, not to contain China, but just to have a, don't seed the field. Um, these are all countries that want that are not revisionist powers. They want US leadership. They don't want to be told what to do. They want more of their own space, but they don't want China to lead Asia. And and that's what Japan is also playing on. Go too. back to
1: why you agree with Tillerson's comments, oh, why you don't agree with your colleagues at CSIS. You
0: know, I, I wrote a piece for the Post. They asked me to do a piece on this. Uh, when after he said it, um, basically you don't want to use the Chinese two, four, six character phrases because they mean something different in China. And you know, people at Kicker and Beda and Cast study them. And you know, and in the U.S., you know, whatever it words. Um, so you 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 lose control of the narrative because these are phrases that will be used in China differently than we may think about them. But I don't think it's disastrous. I mean. The idea, George Bush said, you know, he didn't say win-win, he didn't say it exactly that way, but he had a positive vision for treating China with respect, trying to find win-win solutions. The, in content, it's not that different from what George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Ronald Reagan or pretty much every president said I see, China. so
1: you're, you're not saying it was a good thing, you're saying it wasn't a disaster.
0: It wasn't a disaster like the new model of great power relations, which was, an, which was a, a description of how order should be in Asia. This was a description of the process in U.S.-China relations.
1: Um, yeah, I would argue, in fact, that it was very smart diplomacy to use I, the Chinese phrase. I, I think so. So that it, because in principle, you're agreeing to something, and in practice, then you can get innumerable concessions. That in principle, what does it really mean in principle? No, I mean it's there's nothing that we don't really yeah, agree I, with it in principle. Whereas in practice, mm-hmm. we see, you know. Trade concessions. Right. We seek tighter sanctions on North Korea. Right. We think we seek the the Chinese controlling their companies from dealing with North Korea. We yep. seek concessions in the South China Sea. So in other words, in a degree, in principle, then in practice, you can take a yeah, lot I, more. I, and it struck me as a as a pretty smart way to run U.S. diplomacy.
0: I didn't have a lot of heartburn about it for that reason. Yeah. Um, in general, I think it's better statecraft to come up with a phrase that the American people will. That resonates with the congress and the american people <laughs> just as a general rule and so if there's another way like so in the bush administration we said at the beginning with china we seek a comprehensive uh what are the words constructive comprehensive and candid relationship and the beijing didn't have a problem with that and and maybe there's another way to phrase it but it has to resonate this is critical it has to resonate in the congress yes. has to resonate with the american people and if you use chinese phrases you open yourself a little bit
1: right
0: to some Domestic criticism, but yeah. on the whole, the concepts I think are, it, I agree with you on the concepts. I think they're the right ones.
1: Yeah, but you know, xin xin dag, wo, guanxi, obviously I think it's mm. history, and it will not... Well yeah, pronounced. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. It's only took me 47 years. The, <laughs> the, the, the We're not going to go back to it, but in fact, it was the Chinese concept mm. was avoiding the th- Thucydides trap. And that, that, that was that was where that emanated from. It wasn't restructuring right. Asia. It was to make sure the United States and China followed policies which did not lead to confrontation. And how
0: do you avoid the Thucydides trap, which for people who haven't heard Graham Allison or others talk about it, is this inevitability that rising powers will fight wars with status quo powers. Uh, how do you avoid the Thucydides trap by accommodating China's rise? So um, I'm not a big fan of the Thucydides trap as, a, as history or theory or policy. <clears throat> um, uh, it's interesting, Dai Bingguo told me, and apparently it's in his new book, which I can't read because it's in Chinese, but he told me that when he first proposed uh, the Shingata Taikoku and the new model of Great Power Relations, he included Japan and India, dot, dot, dot. Um, he wasn't uh, so hierarchical about it, but somehow um, it became uh, hierarchical. And there are a lot of Chinese scholars realize why that's a problem for relations with the U.S. Um, and that's why some people tell me that in the UN, for example, Xi Jinping has started talking about a new model of new model of international relations, which it's less about hierarchy and status. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's like Bob Zelik's responsible stakeholder speech, which he gave May- somewhere, somewhere in New York. I can't remember where.
1: That's the criti- that was my <laughs> criticism of his book, and is that he only mentions that Bob Zelleck gave the speech in New York, as opposed to at the National Committee on U.S.-China <laughs> <laughs> Relations. But it is in the footnotes. Yes.
0: Um, but sort of like responsible stakeholder. It's almost better if we don't settle on terms and, and if we're debating what they really mean in substance. So it's not unhealthy that we go back and forth on this with Beijing.
1: The art of the deal. You, you made reference to the art of the deal and the bluff. Um, mm-hmm. Is the, the threat that all options are on the table uh, vis-a-vis North Korea a bluff? Or do you think it's uh, that there's some seriousness about a military option?
0: Um, the first thing I'd say is that had Hillary Clinton won the Electoral College, had Hillary Clinton won, or had Jeb Bush become president, or Marco Rubio, they'd be seeing the exact same thing right now. I'm sure of it. Uh, because what North Korea is doing with its nuclear and missile programs is profoundly dangerous. Um, and raises questions among our allies, and possibly in Pyongyang as well, about whether the U.S. has the willpower to... Um, to fight a nuclear war with North Korea to put a f- no, no fine point on it. <clears throat> and so it's it's essential to make it clear that we will do whatever we have to do in our capability to deter and, if necessary, defeat North Korea. However, an actual preemptive military strike would be madness because most of North Korea's missiles now are moving towards solid-fuel road mobile where you can't find them as easily. It's not the old liquid-fueled Dongs up on a on a stand for three days. And so you wouldn't get them all. They'd have a lot of stuff they could shoot back. And they'd shoot it at Japan and Korea and Guam. And they might let nuclear devices out of the country to pick your favorite terrorist organization. And they have the connections North Korea through criminal weapon enterprises to potentially do that. Preemption's not a good option, even if you, it's not a bluff, you have to be demonstrating, you're prepared to do it. But the most hawkish thing I could see would be an intercept by Aegis missile defense systems at sea of the North Koreans' ICBM launch, um, because it'll blow up somewhere away from North Korea and the North Koreans will react, but it's not um, it's not as much of a war prompting act. More likely than that for this administration's review will be um, a tougher sanctions regime, including, uh, I would predict, secondary sanctions aimed at Chinese companies. Because China has, you know, on the scale of China's action on north korea when i was in the white house in 2001 Jiang zemin's response to president bush's request for help on the north korea problem was i don't know the chinese but he said um, china is not associated with north korea's nuclear weapons program a nuclear program china is not associated which combined both a kind of historical alibi and a you deal with it you're the americans give them what they want make it go away and president bush's response which was pretty effective was Um, Well, I can have Colin Powell work on this problem or I can have Don Rumsfeld work on this problem It kind of depends on whether China is going to help with a diplomatic approach. I was actually in a meeting with Powell and and Jiang Zemin when Powell said this to him in Beijing in 2003 and Jiang Zemin chose Powell. (laughs) chose Powell. So um, We're way 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 far away from that. I mean, I mean, what China's doing in the UN Security Council with sanctions, it's a big step forward. However, what North Korea is doing is exponentially more dangerous than it was then. So secondary sanctions aiming at Chinese firms that are defying defying UN sanctions, I think, is a real possibility. And as we were discussing earlier, I think a serious North Korea policy, and I think the Trump administration means to have a serious North Korea policy, will not put much faith in negotiations. There may be some dialogue. But basically, it's inevitably going to be a source of tension in US-China relations. And it's going to take wise management of the overall relationship because this will not be fun.
1: What about Uh, Trump's offer to meet with uh, Kim Jong-un?
0: Be like, yeah, too many mischievous comments come to mind. Um, Ransom of Red Chief, you can look that up later. Um, But uh, not a good idea. I mean, uh, Kim Jong-un's not leaving North Korea, and I don't think Donald Trump's going to go into Pyongyang. So (laughs) uh, not going to happen.
1: You spent a lot of time in the book talking about about trade, and and you just mentioned um, the 60% polling on TPP, yet both candidates uh, rejected TPP. Both candidates for president rejected TPP. What happened? What should we do about it?
0: Well, um, a couple things happened. Um, I think think President Obama warmed to free trade too slowly. I mean, I I was a, a McCain guy and debated um, my friends for the, from the Obama camp about Asia policy, um, Jeff Bader and Kirk Campbell, very good friends, who were very free trade themselves. Um, but Obama's position and instructions to them were to not speak out in favor of free trade, to criticize the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement, to, to criticize NAFTA, as you'll recall, to get these. It worked politically. He didn't really speak out for free trade over a year into his administration. He didn't really do what Clinton or George Herbert Walker Bush or others have done on free trade agreements, which is reach out to members of Congress, work it. And so at least some of the blame, I think, goes in the Obama administration um, for the politicking they did or the lack thereof. Um, the bicostal coastal elite, uh, the establishment, also bears some responsibility because we, you know, Dan Rosen and I can, you know, in one beer, agree on what our trade strategy should be, I think. So the security elite, the economic elite, the business elite, the Asian experts, the Europe experts, there's, there's not much debate. And among elites in universities and think tanks in, in, in the Chamber of Commerce, the voices for protectionism actually, I think, are weaker and weaker. But the problem is, as we found in this election, that elite became decoupled from the public and was not making a compelling case about how this translated into people's lives or how we would deal with the displacement it caused, although it was, you know, 70, 80% of the displacement is automation, not trade, but just lost that grassroots debate because because among the elite, the consensus was so so strong. Much more, when I was a graduate student or in the 90s, um, there was a real debate among elites about free trade, but the free traders won that, but they didn't win the right. the public. So now you got to rebuild it in a way, state by state, chamber of commerce by chamber of commerce, um, And that's intense, hard work. I don't see these guys doing it. Um, But I do think um, we may see some movement probably after the midterms from Congress and others.
1: Let me open the floor to questions. Earl, right in front. Thank you. Uh, Earl Carr, representing Momentum Advisors and also NYU. Thanks for an extraordinary, exceptional uh, presentation. Give us your perspective on the future of Taiwan with respect to US grand strategy. So the Mahanian
0: school thinks Taiwan is really important geopolitically because it's right smack dab in the middle of the first island chain, Um, the purest form of the Mahanian maritime realists. The continentalist school thinks in their purest form, thinks Taiwan is a, an unnecessary nuisance to achieving a U.S.-China relationship that stabilizes the whole region. And everybody else somewhere in the middle. <laughs> um, I, you know, the current administration has no one that I can see who comes in that second school. And lots and lots of people, including extreme versions of the sort of Mahanian first island chain school, whether they know they're part of it or not, Um, The the president himself doesn't have a position or an opinion, I suspect, either way, and tends to look at these things transactionally, which is why Taiwan, even in spite of the phone call to Tsai Ing-wen, is waiting in terror for this summit next week to see what happens. Um, You know, when I was in the White House, we had within the Republican Party huge fights over Taiwan. There was a very pro-deep green independence camp within the White House. Um, And then there was a you know the Republican Party has is, is you know its its Chamber of Commerce business tradition of being very pro-China and seeing Taiwan as a nuisance. So even within the White House, we had big fights. I took over as senior director in January two thousand four, and I had a huge advantage, which was I was a Japan guy. So um, neither side knew what to make of me, and the main thing I did with people like uh, Randy Shriver and others was create. Um, we created a a group that reported to the Secretaries of State Defense, National Security Advisor, nobody could do anything with Taiwan without reporting to this group. And we had Treasury, State, Defense, and we tried to capture all the views. And the fight stopped, and we had a reasonably stable Taiwan policy. So I think the future of our Taiwan policy depends on this administration quickly establishing, probably in the White House, um, some kind of cell. And by the way, I got this idea from Ken uh, Lieberthal, who did this in the Clinton administration. There's no, you don't go to the NSC and get like a how-to guide. You end up calling Ken Lieberthal, or the current guy's calling me. Um, And Ken said, look, what we did was this cell, figuring out, you know, and it worked great. So I think a lot of it depends on how well this administration patches together that kind of coordination cell. It's a very divided, and, um, you know, it's like a reality TV show. You know, it's a very divided White House right now. That's going to be hard. It's a little bit worrisome for the Taiwan issue and U.S.-China relations and for Taiwan, but that's what they're going to have to do.
1: Uh, let's see who gets voted off the yeah. island. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chris and then Constance, and then we're going to have to probably close. Uh, thank you very much. I'm uh, Chris Merck. Um, and I spent a long time, 17 years, living in Beijing, doing a lot of briefings for people coming in. And um, it strikes me that there are maybe two models, speaking of agency, mm-hmm. for how to do the NSC. One is you have a, a very centralized thing where the White House just does everything. And the other is you have an interagency process, say the General Scowcroft, where the White House is kind of coordinating, making sure everybody gets heard, needs to be heard, and it's fully staffed. I think that would be a difficult model right now because yeah. it doesn't seem the administration is fully staffed. Uh, but I wonder what your view is in terms of what way the, the Trump administration is going to move in terms of organizing the, um, the execution, the formation and execution of policy.
0: Right now it's the apprentice. <laughs> there are, I, people theorize the president has always liked five or six competing cells all fighting with each other, all afraid of him. Um, that's not a very sustainable way to manage the process we're talking about. Um, the ideal model is the Scowcroft model, where the National Security Advisor has the trust of the president and coordinates with the interagency. But remember, the Scowcroft model worked because George Herbert Walker Bush was president. He knew more about China than half of his briefers. He knew more about trade strategy than half of U.S. China. I mean, he had been in positions where he had soaked all this up. And, and so it's a question whether the Scowcroft model would work with a president. Uh, this one, but even one like Barack Obama or George W. Bush, who who starts off, all presidents get a huge education, but start off with, without that knowledge. I don't know. The other thing is um, the State Department, for a variety of reasons, um, is just weaker. And, um, you know, the State Department sometimes complain about us and the NSC and Bush. They complain even more in Obama, and they're really complaining now. Um, part of that is because of technology and... You know, I was able at the NSC to talk on a secure line to my counterparts in Japan, Korea, and Australia. Um, The Chinese MFA, and even the North Koreans, would much rather send back a cable saying, the White House says, than the State Department says. So technology, air travel, all these things um, push other governments towards the White House. And that just inevitably weakens the State Department. I tried to always, Koreans under, no, we even wanted an NSC dialogue. And I said, only if you include our ambassador in Korea and the assistant secretary of state. So I tried to get state in because um, I was a student of history and knew that if the NSC tried to implement policy, it'd be a disaster. Um, but, uh, but for all these reasons, it's harder to find that perfect mix. I, McMaster's, the current national security advisor, is a historian and uh, a historian of military strategy and grand strategy, very, very deliberate uh, thinker. He might find the right Mix, um, but the national security advisor can only do that if the chief of staff and the political advisors respect their space. Karl Rove respected Condi and Steve and did not get in their space. Um, you know, uh, the chief of staff Andy Card respected them and let them do their job. I, I don't. I'm not sure we have that right now. So that larger constellation is really critical. Um, I didn't really answer your question. I, I, I'm not sure whether we'll get there, but. Uh, McMaster's is a pretty impressive guy. The other thing is Tillerson, um, Mattis, and McMaster's all have a common interest in the cabinet working, um, and, um, and frankly, and not letting the ideologues in the White House uh, uh, take charge. So that might create some some movement. Sorry, I hope I didn't cut off the last
1: speaker. Um. But can you, can you get a very sh- very short question, Constant? Because we are short. out of town, very um, short, yeah. and a short answer. OK, Constance Hunter, Chief Economist at KPMG. Great presentation. It seems TPP, to me, has a component that Hillary Clinton should have been able to articulate, which is that this has not only economic benefit, but huge geopolitical, military, strategic benefit. And if the tr- enemy of trade is China, right? then that could have been something that she could have woven into her narrative at the primary level. So my question to you is, do you think this is a problem with her and her campaign? Do you think this is a problem with the Democratic Party? Do you think this is not a problem?
0: This is a problem. Um and President Obama tried to play that China card, and I thought it was clumsy and counterproductive, honestly. I mean, the, the idea that China's going to write the rules if we don't is just wrong on so many levels. But so it's hard to, it's, so what I would say Sorry, is. Sorry,
1: my abbreviated question lacked nuance. But yeah, yeah that no, wasn't no. exactly where I was going. No, with- I
0: know, but, but my point would be, you cannot win this debate with catchphrases or clever you know, articulations of the problem. We're at a moment, John McCain just gave a speech in, um, in Europe, which was really Really interesting, where he said he said basically we're at a moment where internationalists have to make populism work for the national interest. I don't know if you saw his speech, it's worth reading. And he talked about how Dean Atchison to sell NATO in the Midwest, where the America Firsters started in the 1940 3940, where the anti um, where the isolationists grew up again after the war. They were all, by the way, Asia Firsters. They were anti-NATO. They were anti-Europe and anti-intervention in the war. So Dean Acheson went to the Midwest, and he did town hall meetings, and then he'd go drinking with people, and he'd go to coffee shops as Secretary of State, and he sold NATO. On a, on a, he used populism and made the case. And that's what it's going to take, a, a, a certain amount of retail politicking by senior politicians and members of Congress. And well, I think we, it would work. They do it? Who's going to do that? Yeah. Um, I think Republicans in Congress would do it. Some Democrats, Adam Smith, great name for free trader, from, uh, from uh, Washington State, um, it would have to be people like Tillerson, Mattis, You know, the, the, the Under Secretary of State for Economics, the US trade rep. It's hard, it's hard to answer who would do that right now. But that's, I think, what it's going to take.
1: We are out of time. I know it, it, this has been a fantastic presentation. The book is for sale outside, oh. and the author is here to sign it. So please join me in thanking Mike, a (laughs) very fabulous